Hello and welcome to episode 224 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 31st of January 2018. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And John Roberts. Hello. Hey gentlemen. We're back. Yeah. Well, we're back. We, the podcast was back last week uh, with <laughs> Pip's excellent guide to Subnautica, but uh, illnesses and holidays have now been resolved for almost everybody, except uh, for Tom Senior, who's on holiday in Birmingham. <laughs> so we are uh, freshly um, loaded up on opinions. Is that even true? <laughs> <laughs> yep, I got lots of opinions. Good. How was your holiday, Tom? Uh, very good, thanks. I had an awesome time. Went to the Olympic Peninsula um, uh, near Seattle, which is a beautiful rainforest and stayed in a lodge there and then also went to seattle itself some okay. cool games people excellent uh in terms of i forgot what we do Tom. so <laughs> there's uh, news first news <laughs> yeah that sounds about right so uh computer games news there's not a lot of it because it's january but the news that there is some of it pertains to i'm not stalling <laughs> i do remember what this game's called <laughs> paragon <laughs> yeah that in the world of Paragon, fairly big news in <laughs> Paragon is being completely ended and everyone's yes. getting refunded. Remind me which one Paragon is. Paragon is slash was Epic's um, very high-res MOBA. Mm. Um, it was... So, yes, it was this sort of Unreal Engine third-person wizard clicker, uh, which I quite liked. I remember uh, I talked about it probably two years ago on the podcast when I played it during kind of its own development. I know it went through a series of um, sort of dramatic changes in direction as they tried to make it faster and more of an action game and slower and more of a strategic game and, and so on and try and make their, all their ideas click together. Um, but it was clearly not doing the numbers necessary to justify its continued development. I think particularly given that Fortnite um has been such an explosive success that it's yeah. probably quite hard for any studio that is sitting on a one explosively popular game and another not popular game to continue to invest resources into the not popular one. Yeah, I think it must be, um, uh, you know, at a glance it could sound like, oh, Paragon must have been a dismal failure or something. But actually, you can imagine a company where, like, you know, this bunch of people are sitting there working on mm. Paragon and everyone else is making um, Fortnite and Fortnite's Battlegrounds thing has just fucking exploded to an insane degree. It suddenly gets, like, it's basically effectively expensive to have someone working on Paragon. Like, it's costing you all the money you could be making if they're, they yes. make if they're working on Fortnite. Yes, precisely. So, um, so yeah, the game's being shuttered. So I suppose, yeah, you gestured at it already, but the thing that's surprising about this and, and good news about this is that they are flat out refunding every penny people have spent on the game which also makes it seem like it may be a bit about Fortnite because it's like, yeah, <laughs> well, so like much, it's yeah. cheaper for us to give all the money we ever made back than it is to keep them yes. to miss out on expanding Fortnite a bit <laughs> yeah that's yeah, it's kind of staggering isn't it like Fortnite makes more money per second than, <laughs> than um, Paragon ever made so let's just give it back it's a good move I mean yeah that's what I would do if um, I was in that situation you're very unlikely to find yourself in a situation of having... <laughs> no, it probably won't come up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A MOBA you need to cancel. <laughs> Unless you've got anything to announce about the next game. <laughs> well, we were going to keep the secret. But... Um, Gunpoint Battlegrounds. <laughs> it's really How off. would that work? <laughs> I don't think it would. Oh, well. <laughs> well. You can imagine like just like the plane goes overhead and it'll just drop from 2D, like crashing in through the yeah, skylights. Exactly. 
Everyone rushes the elevators. The most powerful thing. <laughs> There's just one gun and everyone goes through it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, it's always a shame when a project is cancelled, but from the developer point of view, at least you had some players. There's thousands and thousands of projects that disappear without a trace that mm. the public never see, never get to prod or appreciate your art and so on. That's yeah. the most depressing glass half full I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> At least you've ever had any water. <laughs> Just gonna toast the outsider, which only uh, five people will remember now. So was that? No, wait. What was that? That was oh uh, Frontiers game before, or my first project at Frontier. Yeah, of course. Which was my um, classic introduction to the industry of working quite hard on something for three years and then it just disappearing without a trace. Yeah, oh, no, so. no. I got some screenshots out. <laughs> Jeez. Well, I guess since it's relevant, we could mention um, that Teddy, I'm just going to take a stab at the surname Diefenbach, uh, formerly of Hyperlight Drifter, who joined Ubisoft Montreal, mm. has now left Ubisoft Montreal because that project was cancelled. Mm. He was the creative director on it and um, uh, we don't know anything about it, I don't think. Or I, I certainly don't. Um, but yeah, I think he's been working on that for at least a year, it feels like. Mm. Um, and, uh, there's been some kind of change in the direction that, like, management wants to go and the project was cancelled and he is leaving as a result, which is sad. It is, but I mean, I wonder if that's kind of a positive thing about indie developers going into big companies is there's not necessarily the assumption that if you do cancel the project someone came on to work on that they will just stay out of a kind of company loyalty or a kind of career <laughs> mindset or anything like that right yeah i wonder what about the rest of the team because there's a bunch of other i mean the, his co-creator on that project was um renault badal who was the programmer on fez mm. um and i don't know but i feel like he might have been at ubisoft longer maybe actually i have no idea i shouldn't say that <laughs> that's a, basically a guess uh but i haven't heard that he is leaving um but yeah, who knows? Mm. Speaking of, uh, oh man. So there's, there's a segue there, but it maybe skips over the other piece of news we have, which is that, um, Opus Magnum is available on <laughs> GOG. Good old games. Now, which it was dumb that it ever wasn't really. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very strange decision. And I've got a wonder, like it calls into question, not just like, that one decision, but their entire process. Like, how do they have a process that would reject that game? So to, to clarify, I think if people didn't, wasn't aware of this, Opus Magnum, which is Electronics sort of excellent, um, alchemy train track game. Um, <laughs> I guess that, um, was rejected from good old games because it looks too much like a mobile game, <laughs> despite getting like, you know, perfect reviews everywhere for being a phenomenal puzzle game. Um, and I think it was, was it today that Good Old Games kind of reversed that decision, but in a way that made it sound like they'd made some brilliant decision themselves? Yeah, their tweet was, um, uh, we've done it. Well, you've done it, and then we've done it. Opus Magnum is on Good Old we Games. We did it, everybody. Like a big victory lap for them just fucking up, and then eventually, <laughs> eventually, after multiple re-evaluations of that, like, after which they stuck to their guns, like, several times, then they eventually relented and finally fixed the obvious fuck-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose anyone who, who really, really wanted that game probably already has it, but it is, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, like Zach was talking about it, uh, or rather the Zachtronics Twitter account was talking about it, which I assume is Zach, but who knows? Um, 
publicly because he was getting bombarded by people saying, please bring your game to GOG. And he's like, I'm trying. But There's a strange policy to have, particularly in this day and age, that it looks too much like a mobile game. Yeah, I'd say it's a bit of a um, uh, a check for what Valve's always been saying about curation, which is that basically it will always fuck up and um, turn down something really good mm. um, about human curation for these platforms. They've always been saying right. like, yeah, we tried to do that ourselves and we were bad at it and uh, we don't want to use humans for it because ultimately they'll never do a um, reliable job and rather just let everything on and then uh, <laughs> err on the side of, of inclusion rather than exclusion. Which has its own issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's the thing, right? Like is an attempt to prevent some of those problems of, you know, um, your game store becoming the front of new grounds circa yeah. 2006. It actually, like, it's not, um, uh, this example is so egregious that it doesn't really work that well as a, as a condemnation of human curation because it's so bad that it's not hard to imagine humans doing a better job than this. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, all is, you'd yeah. have to do is just like, you know, there's a big middle ground between, uh, rejecting Opus Magnum, a beautiful, polished, brilliant game and, like rejecting everything that is obviously like utterly inept or like mm. has been made in less than a week or something. <laughs> it asks, yeah, it raises more questions about the human doing the human curation <laughs> yeah. than it does about the process they're following really, because it's like, okay, well, do you not Google the game? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, they don't even have, wouldn't have to have to do that necessarily because they published like six of his games <laughs> and they've done well on GOG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They just do. The shooting. I think it's the yes. I think the reason this is mostly newsworthy is because it's very funny for a Twitter account to celebrate them unshooting themselves in the foot. <laughs> yeah. But they basically the damage is kind of done because they will have lost sales because of this. And yeah. People will have, um, you know, some people will have held on, but some most people would have bought it on Steam or forgotten about it or anything like that. So it is, it is like sent. You know, it's like the kind of like we, we did it, everyone. We we got over this self inflicted foot injury. <laughs> Um, but yes, nonetheless, congratulations to them and congratulations to, to Zach on <laughs> this symbolic victory more than anything else. Um, we should, I was going to mention, um, that, uh, in relation to obviously indies leaving big studios when their products get cancelled, um, that's presumably because in indie development, if you want, you can just keep working on the same project forever and no one can cancel it yeah, except you. Okay. <laughs> and this is what gives us the 10 year <laughs> indie cycle, right? <laughs> And so I thought this would be a good as any opportunity, John, to talk about what you've been playing. Speaking of iconoclasts. <laughs> exactly. Which is actually eight years. Oh, is it eight? Yes. Sorry. Okay. But All right. yeah, uh, eight year labor of love by. That's actually 10 years in game years. <laughs> a zippy eight years. <laughs> um, Joachim, Joachim Sandberg. Still not sure. I think I've talked about it every time I've come on this podcast. Because it's been in development for eight years, <laughs> and I was referencing it when I was drawing gunpoint pixel art. It's like I don't know how to draw this box. What? What's they? What have they done in uh, <laughs> And then later in heat signature, it's like, I don't know how colors work. <laughs> <laughs> what's he done in iconoclast? Uh, and now we finally get to play it. And yes, it's a uh, puzzle platformer uh, in that Metroidvania style. Um, which I don't play a lot of. Um, they're not really my game. I've, the only other one I've really played is Shadow Complex, which mm. is an old epic game that was kind of 360 Xbox era. Very I good, think. Shadow Complex. And it was great. Uh, and this is also good. Um, 
yeah, you play uh, as Robin, uh, an engineer girl with an actual... Well, her hair is shaped like a spanner, in case you forget what her background is. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, she uh, runs around and tries to help people uh, and hangs out with pirates and then runs afoul of this um, kind of religious government, slightly fascist um, government uh, uh, and so on and has to hit things with a spanner and uh, shoot things and puzzle uh, her way out of it. Does the spanner, do you get to like uh, use it like a spanner? Yeah. Yeah, that's the first thing that the spanner does, I think. <laughs> so it's already one up on heat signature for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That never occurred to me. Big, giant spanners. I think our our wrench is pretty big mm. in, in visual size, and then also in weight, it's 20 kilograms. So that's a, a significant <laughs> wrench. But I think Unconcast's wrench is probably proportionally bigger, right? Yeah. I mean, Probably this is the first place you've gone to with a game eight years. For Tell me about make. the wrench. <laughs> How big is it? Is it bigger than ours? <laughs> it is bigger. Uh, you can electrify it and use it to ride sky rails around as well. Nice. Oh, kind of like Bioshock Infinite? Yeah. Um, yeah, you get a bunch of um, really fun tools and most of them are weapons as well. Um, there's three or four main things that you get to play with over the course of the game. And uh, it's really fun working out their... Um, how they used to solve puzzles and also how they used to solve uh, combat encounters. I mean, like normal um, enemies and stuff, but then also slightly tweaking those uses uh, in bosses uh, and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, what are the boss fights like? Um, they they're about 50-50 between uh, really fun visuals and interesting user mechanics and really fucking annoying. <laughs> um, but that's coming from someone who's not really into... Um, these kinds of puzzle like metrovenias and they have aspects of like bullet hell stuff so there's a lot going on on screen um, and some of the um, sequences that you have to do to beat the boss um, are very kind of uh, kind of mechanical and timing and then you have to do that while evading uh, a bunch of shit that's flying around on screen as well and right. for me it was quite frustrating but they're all gorgeous so um, is there one accept. with like a Disco ball involved in it? Or am I thinking of a totally different game? Because <laughs> I did play Iconoclast oh, yeah. briefly and I, I think I got to a boss. Maybe I didn't. Was it a big ball with blades on that was kind of spinning around? I remember a disco ball like thing attacking me <laughs> <laughs> and there was like colored lights coming out of it. But I might be thinking of a different game. Uh, you say it's good? Yeah. I like Is it. Is that faint praise for eight years of yeah. development? Um, I. I mean, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> um, there's, uh, it doesn't strike me as um, really pushing the envelope. That's a terrible phrase. <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of innovation going on in um, mechanics and um, storyline and stuff like that. Everything's just executed well. Right. Mm. Um, which is um, in itself uh, amazing because it's obviously all one guy. So... Um, Obviously, I was attracted to it first because all the art is beautiful, but then also the animation and the effects and the sound effects and the music is amazing as well. And does it have cutscenes, like full screen cinematic type cutscenes? Uh, not that I've 
seen so they, far. Their trailer was was full of scenes like that, and I was wondering yeah. if that was actually from the game or if they just did it all for the trailer. I think that was just one off of the trailer. Wow. Uh, <laughs> there's maybe like a final cut scene that I haven't seen. Uh, there is. Uh, there are a lot of talky bits. It's a very kind of JRPG story. Um, people say mother a lot. It's like this weird god-like thing at the head of this government thing. So uh, people say mother a lot. And uh, a lot of enemies and stuff will kind of monologue philosophically and then try and punch you in the face, <laughs> uh, which is pretty classic um, JRPG. Um, but the storyline takes you to lots of interesting environments and I didn't skip it all. So cool. Yeah. Wait, did you say I didn't skip it all or I didn't skip at all? At all. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I heard it all as well. <laughs> I was like, what did you skip? Uh, it does commit the faintly unforgivable sin of checkpointing before a boss, but also including the big oh, no, conversation that leads no. up to it. Uh, but you can skip that. Mm. It's just you have to mash the pad before you okay. discover that, uh, which you will do at least five times. <laughs> cool. So, I mean, did you, like, have you finished it? Like, did, did, have you gone deep on it or? Um, it... I'm about to finish it. Right. Um, so you've, so even though it's like not your genre necessarily, you have yeah, persevered. Yeah, I've stuck with but, it. Yeah, okay. There's, um, there's a really, uh, nice pacing in terms of, uh, new areas and then new toys to play with mm. and so on. Like I said, I, I, I think my, the puzzle sections are definitely, um, my favorite bit about it. Um, there's lots of fun stuff with using explosives to propel blocks, uh, around the level, but then riding them and then jumping off and coming back and then doing something else. Um, there's a lot of thought, uh, and care being, uh, that's been put into them. Um, yeah. And like, um, each, each time you get a new weapon, it does something very slightly different or has a different, uh, or majorly different, has a different use, and that affects both puzzles and combat. So you get to learn new things each time and, mm. and try new stuff. Uh, there is some nice design going on in there. Cool. How long has it taken you so far? About 10 hours. I think. Oh, wow. Uh, sure. <laughs> it's the kind of game where, obviously, you can retrace your entire progress and go and get all the secret unlockables huh. and stuff like that, uh, which I will never, ever do. <laughs> but I've, uh, I've really... Yeah, really enjoyed my time with it, I think. Very good. Yeah. Does it make sense that it took eight years? Yeah, you can definitely see uh, where one person has put a lot of content into it. Yeah, it kind of it looks like that just even from the outside is like um, that not only is it beautiful, but it, it looks like you'd have to draw all of it. Like it doesn't look like <laughs> it's uh, um, uh, it's not like super crate box where it all takes place on one screen like uh, 10 hours of content at that kind of level of fidelity is pretty amazing mm. is it does it um benefit from being the work of one person that's not to be like harsh or anything but mm. like obviously something being hard to do is not necessarily interesting to a player right yeah. unless you're a player interested in game design or person making yeah, games i think you can definitely see it um he's definitely telling um the kind of story he wants and so uh, all the art and music is on point for exactly what's happening at any point in the story and mm. uh, uh, the characters that you're, you're talking to. Um, he obviously cares quite a lot about um, small effects and stuff as well. Um, the There's lots of small, fairly bespoke animations for uh, points in the story, like characters hugging or doing little dances and stuff like that. 
um, which he's taken the time to actually animate and mm. uh, give a sense of character to do. And even stuff like the basic run animation um, has had a lot of love put into it. It's this really fun kind of bouncy uh, jog. And uh, the footsteps are all kind of plonk, 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 <laughs> uh, as you go along. Uh, which feels like someone saying, I want plonky noises for my footsteps. <laughs> and no, no one, one can stop, stop me. <laughs> okay, cool. Because that's, that's, I guess, my concern about it. It's something like this ends up interesting mostly from a kind of like, wow, what a technically impressive thing mm. to have done. Yeah. Rather than, and obviously beautiful and, and well-designed, but not having the sort of you know, the kind of the draw of something that's individually excellent in one area when one person puts all their talent into one thing, if that mm. makes sense, and then shares the workload so that other people do mm. other things, right? Like, yeah. Which is the way that game development traditionally works. Yeah. yeah, I think, I don't know if, I feel like you've been, you know, I've damned it with faint praise, but I think it's the thing where um, it's all about the execution mm. of something of a genre that he obviously loves. Mm. Um he's picked all his favorite bits and pieces and he's made something original and he's executed every part of it. Well, uh, which again, um, art, music, animation, design, coding is still a kind of phenomenal feat. Mm. Yeah, totally. I've actually been playing something kind of in a similar vein, a beautiful game that is not in my preferred genre, uh, which is Celeste, um, Mm. by Matt Thorson and friends. Uh, Matt did Towerfall, um, and it is a very hardcore, I knew it was going to be a hardcore platformer. I didn't know it was going to be a very hardcore platformer, um, about climbing a mountain. The mountain is called Celeste. Um, and, uh, it's surprisingly story driven, um, which is cool. And I'm only playing it. I was literally, I knew about this game, uh, for a long time and was kind of, you know, thought it looked very nice, but knew I was never going to buy it or play it because it's just, not at all my thing. Um, and then I did buy it and play it because it has an assist mode and, uh, the assist mode lets you do things like you can just turn on invincibility, which means, uh, it's the kind of, it's a game primarily about jumping over spikes, you know, in, in the vein of super meat boy and that kind of stuff where, you know, 90% of the le- level is lethal to you. Mm. Um, and with invincibility mode, you can just walk on those spikes. And if you fall into like a bottomless pit, um, you know, the bottom of the screen sometimes is fatal to you. Um, uh, you just kind of bounce on it. <laughs> and while you're bouncing, you can like jump and then get a bit higher if you like. And you can also, uh, change the time scale of the game from, actually, you don't know what the minimum is, but I assume it's probably 10% because it goes down in 10% increments from 100%. Mm. Um, which it was really interesting to me. And I, I did that for a while. Like I, st- I started with no assist mode options. And then when it got too hard, I started to turn the time scale down a bit to like 80%. And that did help a lot. And then 70% that helped a lot. And then it got just so brutal. I'm like, okay, <laughs> now I would also like invincibility. And then now that I'm invincible, I don't really need the time scale thing so we can <laughs> go faster. Um, I think the time scale slows down everything, possibly even including the music. <laughs> Maybe my imagination, but I think the music goes slower when it's like, I, it, it, um, I think it's, Game Maker. I know that um, Matt often works in Game Maker. Um, and if it is, you can literally just change the room speed in Game Maker, which is just kind of like the sort of the the ticks at which all game things are processed. Um, and that would explain why it affects everything, like level transitions. You know, it fades to black slower um, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, so it's like 
every now and then I'll turn assist mode off just to try a room and just see like, can I do this? Cause I'm quite away into it now. Um, probably like two hours. Um, and that's two hours of being invincible. So <laughs> I may have made more progress than, uh, I've made a lot more progress than someone like me would make in two hours without mm-hmm. invincibility. Maybe as people who are good at the game progress at about the same rate I do with <laughs> invincibility mode on. Um, and yeah, every now and then I turn, turn it off again, uh, just see if I can do something. And it, sometimes that's led to a fun experience. Sometimes I've been able to actually complete a puzzle or something. Mm-hmm. It's actually like with really, really fiddly stuff. Um, the only game of this kind I've ever liked really is N and it does remind me of N sometimes um, in that, that sense of like on a good run on a hard level in N you kind of know as you're doing it you're, you're putting all of your skill and reflexes into it and doing it as fast as you possibly can uh, or as you know perfectly as you possibly can but you also sometimes when you get a string of things right you also think shit that was lucky <laughs> like, <laughs> that is exactly what I intended to do but it's total luck that it worked because uh, I've done this 20 other times and mm. my fingers slipped last time and uh, that would have been fatal and so with Celeste I'll just take a stab at a room and sometimes I actually do just get lucky like I have I don't have the practice and the muscle memory to do this yet but I happen to have timed this so that this enemy doesn't hit me and I get past and um, and that feels kind of good and if that doesn't happen I'll just turn invincibility mode on <laughs> just <laughs> like it, you just you never lose more than a screen's worth of progress. Like you can only get reset on the current screen, but often like N and uh, I guess like Super Meat Boy, um, you are dealing with like five or six difficult obstacles. And then on the seventh, you die and you got to right. do those five or six perfectly again. And if you are struggling with those five or six, it's going to be so many tries before you even get another go at number seven. Mm. And number seven is harder than all the others. So it's going to take you like, <laughs> that's going to have to happen like 70 times. Um, and I'm just not up for that. I like the, re- it's the repetition that kills me with these games. And mm. so it's really nice just to be able to, anytime I feel like, oh, fuck it, I actually can just turn on invisibility mode and just walk past this whole challenge. And it's got enough story stuff and enough, each new area is visually different enough that it's, um, uh, compelling to play even when you're not engaging with the challenge. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a really nice, uh, thing. For them to add, that's completely changed it from a thing I wasn't going to buy and play and to a thing I did buy and play and liked. Hmm. And that's the, that is the anti-Bennett Foddy decision. Mm. Not that as specifically against him, but it's the opposite <laughs> of getting over it's it. Trying to prevent Bennett Foddy from playing the game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I made this game. I made this <laughs> mode for Bennett Foddy <laughs> to hurt him. But, but, you know, given that getting over it, the point of getting over it is it doesn't offer you those kinds of handholds. Yeah. It's almost like a meditation on the absence of, of, um, uh, handholds simply to allow the player to experience the thing. It's, you know, what if the experience is nothing but failure? How do you feel <laughs> then other than quitting? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really nice idea and a really nice, I suppose it, it needs to be backed up then by good art and a story that you care about in order to have yeah, something exactly. to do, right? Rather than just simply like click on whatever. Yeah. Although that was that gif going around, um, lately of a game whose name I don't know. Um, the original tweet I think was, um, uh, maybe in Japanese. Um, and so I can only understand the GIF. And the GIF was like someone jumping over like three platforms on a platformer. And then the third one spikes pop up and kill him. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, next time he, uh, pauses on the second platform and the third platform just like jumps on him. <laughs> the spikes stab him <laughs> from there. And it's just like, it goes on like that for like several levels. And every time you think you figured out a way past this, this thing, just the level changes like comes to life and fucks you over in a really aggressive <laughs> like pointed way and that game uh i would never ever want to play it certainly without any kind of god mode but you almost kind of um 
you want to see all the content, even though it's kind of, it, the art is nothing to look at. And mm. <laughs> I suppose you could say that is story. Like <laughs> that is a, a conversation between you and the level. Yes. Looney Tunes, basically. But <laughs> yes. Awesome. So that's Celeste. Yeah. That GIF is not Celeste, but the, the game I was talking right. about before is Celeste. Right. With an E on the end. How does movement feel when you are not in danger? Does that make sense? Is it still fun to move around? Because Tarful had good movement. Like, yeah. Is it still it's, fun to jump around and do things? It's got this neat thing. Um, it's got, uh, you can climb on surfaces. So if you're holding down right trigger on a gamepad, you can just like walk up surfaces. Um, and, uh, then it's got air dash. So once per jump, you can dash in any direction, um, including up and, when you do, your hair changes color to indicate that you can't do it again till you land. And you've got to not just like grabbing onto a wall isn't enough. You have to stand on solid ground and then your, mm. your dash recharges. recharge your hair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how would your hair recover when you're climbing to a wall? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Obviously, it has to be on the ground. Um, and that's a nice mechanic, but I'm playing on gamepad, which arguably I only have myself to blame. Uh, and I cannot judge whether I'm holding a thumbstick directly up or up and to the left right. or the difference between up and to the left and just left like the thresholds there are not intuitive to me and i think i keep moving the controller in my grip and so it's at a different angle and so mm. what i'm doing my thumb is um the same but the result is different and there's no on-screen indication of what direction you're pressing because this is to aim your jump this is not your movement stick um and uh you only find out what direction you're pressing when you press the dash button which as i say uses up your dash so you cannot dash again so it is a hundred percent of the time you're dead if you're wrong about that right. <laughs> just and that's most of my deaths it's just oh i didn't know i was pressing up i thought i was pressing up and left <laughs> right is the challenge level getting progressively harder and harder um, you- yeah not uh yes it is um but it's not actually too brutal. Like it's not impossible for me to complete a screen mm. at this point. <laughs> when Are I'm... you expected like Spelunky to be training yourself on those earlier levels and then going up? Um, or is it the kind of case where you can skip past one really annoying thing and then have a shot at the next room? They do uh, like each area kind of has its own um, motif. And so one of them has these big jelly blocks that you can kind of, dash into and when you're in them you get launched out the other side really fast and they're really satisfying and cool um and the challenge there is like uh dealing with those under time pressure and uh figuring out the rules of how those work and how like if you try and go through a jelly block but you hit a wall while you're in it you'll just bounce back out the same way you came in um and then uh another area has this kind of gross stuff growing on the levels so just a huge amount of the geometry is fatal to you and so that one's all about really careful tiptoeing onto Mm. landing on just this one little bit that's safe and then getting around the next bit um and so each time it changes i feel like the difficulty resets a little bit because they don't want to heap you on like the hard version of this mechanic until you've got used to it for a while so uh i get to play for a little bit (laughs) for real (laughs) and then i'm like nope can't get past any of this it is cool that you've actually got a chance to see it, though, rather than yeah. just simply not see it, which yeah. is the alternative, right? I think that's the, um, I think some developers who don't do, who are against these kinds of modes think that their choice they're making is between a player playing with this on or playing with this off. But actually the choice you're making is between a player playing with this on or not playing at all. <laughs> yeah, right. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that's, I'm glad that's that, because that, that actually <laughs> might get me to play. And I love yeah. things like Super Meat Boy, but I also had, uh, limited time so there's kind of like <laughs> yeah from what i gather this is an extremely good hardcore platformer like if you mm. like that kind of thing it's a um apparently a great one <laughs> i wouldn't mm. know well isn't this kind of what people wanted from cuphead 
Mm. Oh, yeah, I would have loved this for Cuphead because I really want to see those worlds. And right, yeah. Art, but I could just get nowhere with it. Mm. Yes, indeed. What have you been playing, Chris? Uh, so I have been playing Subnautica, so I'm not going to go too deep under the sea <laughs> on this one uh, because um, I appreciate that, you know, last week's episode um, was entirely a, a atmospheric Subnautica special by Pip. Um, and it was, in fact, it was editing that episode that kind of made me want to play it. Like, uh, you know, um, Pip has played probably like close to a hundred hours of it for various stages of early access over the last couple of years. Um, and so it's always been kind of like around in the house. Like I've sort of been very aware of it. Um, and for some reason just didn't assume that I would, uh, play it or click with it simply because I don't really like survival games in the, any, and I've never really liked a survival game <laughs> basically. Um, and also, um, I mean, I think it looks lovely, but like I had that sort of like, Oh, I can look at this. I can see the pictures. Pip can show me things she's found and that's cool. But actually, um, I have been blown away by it. I've like, um, it's, it's been a while since a single player game grabbed me like this. Um, and yeah, I'm really taken back by how, how great it is. Like it's easily like a kind of strong start to the year for me. And like, I would be amazed if it didn't feature on my game of the year list. Mm, wow. Um, and I think I get something out of it that's slightly different to what Pip gets out of it because Pip's very much into the, um, which I think is a part of both how she approaches the game generally, but also a factor of having gotten into it quite early in early access when it was just to kind of explore the ocean, play with this sandbox was sort of creating kind of experience. I've come to it as a launch game, um, where it's a pretty polished adventure experience. Like that's kind of what it is. Like, the survival stuff is definitely important and it's important because it makes your progress through this adventure feel meaningful. Um, and I think it makes a good case for why survival mechanics aren't just busy work because um, they having stuff you need to do, having stuff you need to kind of shore up before you can kind of embark on something um, makes um, the makes every interaction with the game feel a little bit more interesting, but also makes those moments where you go out to achieve a particular task feel, um, feels more organic and it feels more like an adventure somehow because you determine all of the different parameters for your preparation for it, mm. if that makes sense. So, um, the setup for Subnautica, which most people know is that you've, uh, crash landed, your ship has crashed, a massive starship has crashed in an alien world. That's almost entirely ocean. And, you start with simply a life, your escape pod, which has some basic stuff in it. And you kind of go from there to get uh, a little submarine and you can build underwater bases and things like that. And that's the survival game element. You need to eat and drink and secure fresh water and things like that, which is difficult. Um, and then eventually you set up, but as you do, then you get like uh, initially sort of like radio transmissions that will take you out to other escape pods and they'll give you a little bit of the story and move things along. Um, but you also have basically the entire game there from the beginning. Um, it's all kind of different things trigger at different points. And there's some very good, very brave design wise, like, um, storytelling. It's, uh, I think it really is. It, I'd love to see a Far Cry game learn from how this <laughs> game tells a story in an open world, because that's probably the comparison I would use the most, because obviously they're super different things. This is not a combat game, really. You can, but it's about surviving. So it's not about killing all the things making all the wallets <laughs> like um 
even though it has hunting and crafting, it feels very, it feels far more organic in this. It feels more like it's connected to the world rather than like, um, you know, filling in your skill tree or whatever. Um, all of the world is there, but there are logical reasons you can't do certain things. Some of it is kind of time gated in some ways. Like there are events that will occur and they're spectacular. Like the, uh, one of the game's big successes across the board is its sense of scale and it's, uh, it's a good looking game anyway, but it's capable of doing things at a scale that is genuinely sort of, um, takes you aback. Um, and lots of great little sort of perspective tricks and things, but it's also brave enough to let you miss those things. Mm. Um, like I can give you a very basic example, but like, um, at some point after you arrive on the planet at the start, this is not really a spoiler. Um, there's an explosion in the reactor core of the ship. And that actually is something that moves the, your progress forward gives you some new blueprints allows you to start exploring that area of the map this is super early stuff but when i when my radio was telling me like you know quantum reactor breach in five seconds i was like i'm swimming up to the surface to look and there's a really great like you know if you love big objects big space objects <laughs> big industrial space objects uh framed in a way that makes you go wow then there's a real like, oh shit, and you go and duck under the waves as the kind of shock wave ripples out towards mm. you. And it does stuff like that. And then that's not to say nothing of stuff lurking under the ocean that you make you go, oh no. Um, yeah, this is one of my phobias. <laughs> yeah, it's one of mine. Um, yeah, you're not the only person. Like I've got a bad case of the ocean willies. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a, a mild case uh, of the OWs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it does help a lot that you're very rarely in pure open ocean mm. To, mm. and you have um, complete freedom of movement. When you first start building vehicles, um, you can travel fairly quickly and there's almost always a reference point um, that isn't a big mouth, um, <laughs> but like coral banks or just skimming along uh, where yes. you can see the seabed. It does take a lot of that. Um, uncertainty out cool. of it. But and this is kind of what I'm, I love about it actually is that it, you, so there's definitely a moment, there was definitely a moment for me where I'd gotten to a point where like I spent a long time building like a pretty great base. Like I've got like, cause when I was a little kid, I loved like Thunderbirds and Stingray, like any like Jerry Anderson stuff I adored. And, um, there's part of me that will always love little vehicles coming out of bigger vehicles mm-hmm. or, um, <laughs> Or cool bases, right? So, like, I have, you know, um, and this is this is a playstyle thing. Pip approached her base building project as like um, g- gardens of lots of different sort of samples of the different flora and fauna she's found, like uh, aquarium tanks and things like that. Mine's um, more kind of practical, but I also wanted it to feel designed. So I spent ages on the layout, and it sort of sits on the edge of an abyss, um, so I can get down the ground but also i've got this kind of like scanning room that overhangs where i can customize it to scan to different depths for different resources and things Mm. and then a little submarine bay tucked into a corner where i can kind of deploy my little submarine it's it's super cool super gratifying to build and really fun and having that feels like a kind of genuine asset and almost like a it feels like a planned part of the game that actually wasn't planned i built that Hmm. and that makes the whole thing feel more meaningful but when i got it i had almost that worry of like okay, at what point does my power level get ahead of the curve? And because you, you know, 
you start out and it is scary you can't swim around for very long but you don't have the air tank yet you know you you get these upgrades that expand your range and then you become less afraid of some of the creatures you see earlier on and you get better at understanding where they're going to be and you get better at um traversing distances you know you're going back and forth across distances that felt like epic journeys the first time you did them and so my worry was that yeah eventually you will um kind of take away some of the the, the fear like i think the fear is important mm. right the ow's right <laughs> like if you lose them something of the magic is, has been lost mm. and then like i played for like 20 hours and built this base and got my submarine and, and i'd gotten the um because i've been playing kind of efficiently and methodically i had the max depth upgrade for that submarine so i can go down to 900 meters below the surface anytime i want um but i hadn't really like i'd become a master of like a little domain um, but then going out beyond that suddenly brought all the fear back again. And because there's another tier of power that I haven't reached yet. And I had, uh, today, uh, my first, like, real, like, heart-wrenching setback where I got pinned into a cave 600 meters down by a creature. The creatures, and they're very imaginative as well. Like, the designs of the monsters, like, okay, yeah, sometimes you're just going to see, oh, that's big and scary, I'm going to hide. Um, but sometimes creatures do things that you don't expect or you don't know they can do. And, but it happens and it's, you know, it's sort of it takes you back. Like its ability to surprise you is super important because it mm. creates that sense that, yeah, you're on an adventure into the unknown. It's not like, oh, this thing happens just to hit harder than the previous <laughs> thing. It's like, I didn't know you could do that to me and now yeah. I'm scared. Um, think, but any- sorry, uh, uh, an important part of maintaining that, uh, uncertainty is their use of biomes. Uh, so there mm. are very different um, environments that you um, so it's like water. Through. Then there's like sand, and jungle. <laughs> <laughs> there's water and water and water and water. <laughs> okay, um, but they change um, re- in really interesting ways and quite dramatically. And there's several uh, big jumps. Uh, so it's not like uh, your starting area just continues on and on and on forever. Which so. In that case, you would learn all the rules and suddenly, uh, everything would be certain. There would be, um, you wouldn't be worried about anything. But when, uh, like the thing, uh, your familiar territory just drops away in like an abyssal gap and suddenly all the, um, flora changes and then, oh no, what are the fish going to be like here? <laughs> yeah. And there are, there are things like nighttime. Nighttime is really scary initially because you can't really see very much underwater. And it's scary for a long time. Um, but obviously the deeper you go, less important light, natural light becomes anyway. So you start getting sort of strategies and those strategies applied elsewhere make other areas less threatening. But the one that gets me that I love, but I think it's a wonderful piece. I just think it's a wonderful piece of design is the sonar. You can get the sonar upgrade for the little submarine and it's, it's basically equipped like a weapon and you fire it. And when you fire it, you get this little boo ping and um a red wireframe fills in the edges of every object within a radius sort of expanding out from you which includes fish and other creatures so it allows you to see in a different way it, you can suddenly like you can see, um its ability to pick out uh, solid objects extends further than your visibility in most cases so suddenly it makes areas that are previously quite scary because there are scary things there 
a little bit safer because you can ping them from further away than you can see them. So you can do a kind of tentative ping at the mouth of a cave and then suddenly it'll ripple out and then the very edges of the red wireframe will just catch something huge <laughs> moving in the distance, which gives you a little bit of, a, of the ocean willies. But it's you're, you're, you're controlling the ocean willies dispenser, <laughs> your fingers on the ocean willies button, rather than, rather than you pootling along with your headlamps up and then suddenly, whoa, scary thing. Yeah. It's like you were kind of ping, okay, inch forward again ping okay <laughs> and that i find manageable mm. like even when i'm i've got them bad ocean willies <laughs> like you just you know um like it it's it's it actually becomes exciting it becomes the exciting half of horror where it's like i'm thrilled by this mm. rather than repelled by this yeah god this has vr support as well doesn't yes it, it does oh yeah. i wouldn't even <laughs> oh the ultimate willy helmet as they should call it <laughs> Just strapping a big ocean woolly on your head. <laughs> um, <and laughs> some of the some of the monsters literally are just a big ocean woolly. <laughs> the, um, the um, <laughs> so the um, that that is something that like it's rare for a game to break out of like um, the sort of the tropes of an experience like this or the kind of arc of an experience like this and just feel like an experience I'm having. But that's the reason it's been so special because like, so I was to finish that earlier, I was trapped underwater by this creature I hadn't seen. And my, so my Leviathan res- emergency response, if I get chased by something really big is hide in a little cave, mm. right? Get somewhere it can't get. It's actually, and that's lovely because that is game logic, but it's also movie logic. And one of those things mm. marry, that's really nice, right? Um, but it got me anyway in a way I didn't expect. And my submarine got destroyed and it was my first submarine and it was my favorite submarine. And you only have one save slot, which causes problems if you have bugs. And that's a big caveat against it is that sometimes when, when progress hindering bugs happen, they can be devastating. It hasn't happened to me, but it hasn't happened to Pip. And my initial thought was like, um, oh, well, I guess time to load a save, but actually it isn't. And also if I die, I just respawn back at my base and possibly lose some items. (laughs) So I don't really want to die, which is a good instinct to have in the game, right? Like particularly when you have a fail state, it's a good instinct to go oh god i've got to live and suddenly i'm like i'm pot like subless 600 meters down and i have still have my little like it's like a little engine you can hold on to and Mm. scoot around with like a ocean scooter and so it's just a question of like get out and i i'd I'd gone really deep and i didn't even really know if there would be a way out above me but there happened to be like there happened to be like a passageway up through the caves and i could kind of keep going and i have like a good high capacity air tank and things so i could just keep going but i wasn't sure where i'd even come out and then that process of escaping the destruction of my sub um actually revealed an, an, a way to get back to where i was that mm. was a lot less involved than the way i'd initially gone down because i ended up escaping and then coming out on the surface near a, a pretty recognizable landmark so i was like okay so if i go pretty much down from this point i will find my way back to where i was but then i was off on another basically uh, you know hour or two of adventure building a new submarine, uh, finding the resources needed to build a new uh, depth module and all the rest of it to basically get back to where I was, which is definitely backtracking, mm. but made it feel more like I'd experienced some real loss and it did sting, but I came back from it and I didn't die. And that was a really, you know mm. what I mean? Like the race for survival was still kind of worthwhile because it was in surviving that I discovered some information that can help me when I kind of crawl back. This happens in like most survival movies as well. Mm. Is there's always some massive setback. They always lose some vital piece of equipment, or they're like there's some something really d- devastating happens. There are positive experiences. Well, 
uh, like that as well. Just small things like um, you'll be playing for a while and then you realize that you haven't been up to the surface yeah. for a long time and you're becoming self-sufficient down <laughs> in your base mm. and stuff and you're understanding the ecologies and stuff. Or you haven't had to go back to your starter kind of life raft, which is where your basic crafting stuff is to begin with. And then like I've, I'm actually deeper than I've ever gone before. And yeah, yeah. it's like all these kind of slightly organic milestones that will mean more to you because you're discovering them and they're through your own ingenuity and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. There's, um, you're right. Like I remember the moment I switched off the waypoint for the starter life raft was like a moment. Cause it's like, I, I've been placing my own beacons and naming my own beacons and creating my own kind of sense of the geography of where I live. And I'd sort of, um, I remember having a thought, um, earlier when I was sort of, I was heading to a, a plot related place from my base and I, I had this thought, like a game design thought, like, oh, I bet there's some crazy monster along the path between my base and this thing. And then I realized, hang on, the developers of this game have no idea where my base is. <laughs> like, I chose where to put my base. And I didn't, you know, like, really could have put it anywhere. So that's when, when there is a cool, when there is some interesting geological feature or something on the way, that's actually completely organic. That's not planned. That's, like, just good design and, and making sure there's something interesting everywhere. Like, mm. you find just just sort of interesting stuff. Um, it really does make a good case as well for these games, not having uh, generated landscapes because it isn't, it's a, you know, it has some of the qualities of generated landscape in terms of how it looks. And I think resource placement can be random. Yeah. Uh, well, within a, within kind of defined boundaries. There's something about the, the fiction and the themes and the kind of um, the mindset you get into it. Um, because I reached it was a much earlier uh, beta and I reached the edge of the map hmm. and I'm still entranced by it <laughs> because it's like a terrain block and it just stops and plummets into nothingness and there's just darkness out there. <laughs> and for a good 20 minutes, I was kind of going up and down it and then like just teetering at the edge and then plunging over and coming back up and it's like, what's, what's down here? And I just uh, kind of flew my, or swam my sub into the dark for 30 seconds it's like, this is terrifying. Oh, no, it's just the end of the level. <laughs> well, I still enjoyed it. Yeah, so. yeah. It's like the, the far lands in Minecraft where if you mm. go too far, the generation starts to fuck up and there's always chunk errors. And yeah. I really like that. Um, and so, yeah, so I actually said I wasn't bang on about it and we talked about it loads, but like, um, <laughs> it's also got, um, I think, a really great, some really great plot beats in it, like some really great just set piece moments mm. that, um, great reveals. Um, like I can understand, like, so I'm really glad that I've come to this game fully in the era where I don't really use Twitter at all. Cause I understand people getting very upset when things have been spoiled for them. And actually I, I had, um, I loaded up Twitter to check for, I think questions for miniatures monthly or something like that. And I literally, one of the first tweets in my old timeline was like somebody spoiling something in Subnautica. Mm. So <laughs> I would definitely recommend it be, it's, it feels like an experience that's designed to be encountered quite personally. Like there is, you know, don't even click the links underneath the games, you know, the kind of the syndicated links into the, um, the games page in your Steam library. Cause like that stuff spoils stuff. Like it's- I started reading RPS's review of it and like the first line is John Walker saying, the funny thing about Subnautica is you can't say anything about it without spoiling it for someone. <laughs> and yeah. so I immediately stopped. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you know, you really can't like it's, it's, and, and not, you know, I think, I think there's, and it's not simply, 
I think the good thing about it though is there's so much in it that like any one screenshot or any one thing is probably not the big spoiler you think it is because there mm-hmm. are great moments and um uh, it creates a really cool sense of if you f- just feel keep feeling the world get bigger like it feels it, particularly if you are a sufferer from ocean willies <laughs> then it you it will give you the ocean willies in the very first area of the game where you can dive down to about 20 meters and you're just grabbing coral off the seafloor. You, you know, when your pod comes down, your escape pod comes down very forgiving, you know, naturally from, you know, lucky game design reasons. You happen <laughs> to land in a pretty safe, forgiving place. Uh, but you don't feel that way. You know what I mean? It's, it's ocean willies minute one, but it's still ocean willies hour 20. And that's a lot of willies. I think they're to be very, they're, <laughs> Sustained to, they're to be roundly commended on sustaining the ocean willies for as, uh, with the, with the consistency and figure that they have. And that is, uh, my submission to the jury. I don't <laughs> Rest my case. Um, no, I, I really am impressed by it. And like, um, the final thing I would say, and I think the reason that I think you would enjoy it, Tom, like, cause I think you and I probably share a not particular love of survival games and kind of grind and that kind of thing. Mm. But, um, very early in the game, I, um, I, I did the thing I like to do in games like this, which is like play like the story is real, which is something we don't necessarily have in common, but <laughs> like that sort of like when the game tells you these are the stakes, go and do the thing, right? Like, and because it's a survival game, because you, direct your progress in terms of tools and equipment predominantly yourself i thought about it and i was like what tools do i need to achieve this thing the game is sort of telling me through flavor text i need to achieve and then i went off on an adventure to do that thing and actually i think i got slightly ahead of the plot because i'd done something earlier than i was sort of than i would have been pushed to do it but it felt super gratifying to go off and kind of like plan and execute an adventure and have the game say yes to that the entire way as long as i'd kind of you know determined what kinds of tools i needed they did work you know that kind of thing rather than the kind of traditional open world story thing of like at this juncture you will go and do this in the prescribed way like um it's it's to the game's credit i think that pip and i encountered the story in a very 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 different way Mm. um you know uh, because of her way of playing she was far better equipped than i was when she was doing some of the same things because she'd done her own thing for 20 hours (laughs) and came everything with the best gear in the game and i had a game about kind of jury rigging solutions and running away from crabs (laughs) um which uh, was its own form of uh terrifying fun Mm. Basically, it's really good. And everyone's banging on about it at the moment, but there's a good reason for that. It's really, really good. It's really, really good. Subnautica. Tom. I played one more thing, um, which is uh, Slay the Spire, which is a weird name. Mm. <laughs> Have um, you slain it? Uh, no. Oh. And you can't, I think. It's in early access, and so it's... Um, and it's like proper early access where they really haven't finished the game yet. Um, and so there are two characters to choose from, but there's a slot for a third mm. that is just, you just can't pick it yet. Um, and when you can, uh, when you get to the end of it, it feels like what you experienced there is kind of a placeholder. Maybe. I don't know. It's either a placeholder or there's some kind of weird community event going on, but whatever it is, you kind of, it literally says at the victory screen, this is victory question mark <laughs> and then some flavor text. And, uh, so that feels like an early access thing to me. It feels like there's going to be something there that right. isn't there yet. But, um, and maybe I'm slaying the spire. I don't know. Anyway, it's a 
mashup of a roguelike and a like deck building card game. Hmm. So you, uh, the different characters you can play as, there's just, uh, initially there's only one you can choose from and eventually you unlock a second one, but those are completely different decks with no overlapping cards. Um, and you get, uh, a starting deck will have like eight strike cards in it and eight block cards in it and a strike card does six damage to your enemy and a block card protects you from five damage on their turn uh so each like encounter is just like one to three enemies and uh while you are deciding what cards to play you can see what they're going to do so it'll tell you if they're going to attack and not only tell you they're going to attack it'll tell you exactly how much damage they're going to do they're going to do 12 damage and so if you have three block cards in your hand each of which blocks for five um and you get three action points per turn you probably just want to play all three block cards and not play any of your strikes or any of your fancy stuff because if you play three block cards you'll have 15 block and when they attack for 12 damage they'll do no damage at all to you mm. uh you'll block all of it all of your health will be preserved your health is persistent between fights it doesn't get replenished between them um so it's much more important to preserve your health than it is to like finish the fight quickly or whatever so it's usually not worth taking like a few points of damage even if it would let you close the fight out faster uh, with a basic enemy. So um, uh, you're kind of thinking in, in those terms, like block all their damage and then do as much damage as I can on top of that. And then you get cards like Neutralize, which will um, uh, weaken all their attacks um, and deal a little bit of damage. Uh, the starting character is kind of a warrior and uh, on a basic level, a lot of the cards he can get after every single encounter uh every normal enemy you defeat um you get a choice of three cards to add to your deck and the first time i played i just i didn't even know you could skip that i mean there is a big skip button on that screen to be fair but i didn't like it was almost like i, I just assumed that was a cancel button or, something, or like an exit button or something like that um it, you get presented with three cards i was just thinking okay i have to pick one of these three and i, and I picked one and on my first ever play of this game, I actually completed it <laughs> hmm. just through, um, you're getting all these, uh, choices of three upgrades. Obviously I had no knowledge or experience as to what was a good idea to pick. And I didn't even know you could skip this choice. So I was adding to my deck all the time, which I now know is not necessarily a good thing because if you, once you have some really good cards, you want those cards to come around more often. So right. you get dealt a hand each turn after that. After you finish playing your cards, all of those cards are discarded, regardless of whether you, you play them or not. Um, so there's no benefit to saving them up or anything. Um, you're always going to cycle through your deck like five cards at a time or seven cards at a time, depending on uh, your hand size. Um, and so if you have, uh, for example, a uh, just like a really high damage attack, uh, you don't want to get a medium damage attack as an extra card in your deck because that's just going to delay how often that high damage mm. one comes around. Um, but I didn't know that, so I just went for fucking everything, and I was like, oh, that does a lot of damage, I'll take that, even though it costs two action points instead of one. Um, and I got really lucky, uh, because it also has, when you defeat like an elite enemy or a boss, you get a relic, and a relic is like a passive bonus that will just persist, uh, for the rest of your run. And these are a lot like Risk of Rains, where they're just like, you'll keep finding quite a lot of them, you'll end up with like 12 probably by the end of the game. Mm. Um, and they all have little buffs. Some of them are really, really significant. Like, you get three action points per turn. The ice cream relic, <laughs> yes, it's just an ice cream, um, means that your action points are preserved. And so if you 
only spend one action point this turn, you get two more next turn. So you get five instead of three. And then if you don't spend all five of those, you're going to get more next turn. And right. they can just snowball to a crazy extent. And then there'll be a card that's like, uh, most cards cost like one action point or two action points. Some of them cost three. Some of them cost X action points, which is just as many as you have left. And it'll be something like deal seven damage for every action point you spend. So if you then got like nine action points <laughs> saved up just in that one turn, you can just absolutely smash something. Um, and that's, basically the fun of the game is the maths of it uh seem quite tightly controlled and balanced at first and then the more you play and the more cards and relics you discover the more loopholes you realize there are Mm. so the second character has uh, a bunch of poison type attacks and the first time i played i didn't end up using poison at all with that character because it just i think i only ever got one card that did any poison damage and it wasn't that great and then uh through Competing it, I unlocked some new cards for my next run, and it's random whether you ever encounter those new cards or whatever. Mm. Uh, but I happened to get a bunch of poison cards, and um, one of them is uh, Power, which is it's called Noxious Fumes or Noxious Gas. And you cast that, and it costs you some action points, does nothing this turn. But at the end of your turn, it will apply three poison damage to every enemy. And it'll keep doing that for the rest of the combat. Like every single turn, it'll apply three more poison damage. Three poison damage does three damage that turn. And next turn, it'll wear down and it'll only do two poison damage next turn. Then it'll only do one poison damage turn off that and then zero and it'll wear off completely. Except that you're doing three damage, three poison damage to them every single turn. And so it's going up faster than it's going down. So they're just getting worse and worse and worse. So like as soon as you've cast that once, everyone is going to die and they're dying faster and faster every single turn forever. (laughs) So it's like a really mild effect at first, but if you can just last long enough, you've just won. There's nothing in the game that can resist Mm. it. Um, and it's snowballing. Um, and then, but it snowballs too slow and it's very hard to block all of their damage and they do special attacks and a lot of these enemies get stronger as they go along and all that stuff. Um, but then, there's a card called Catalyst. A catalyst doubles the amount of poison damage someone is taking. So if they have three poison damage, then it would make the six, which is more than twice as good because it's also going to, you know, take much longer to wear off as well as doing twice as much damage this turn. Um, but uh, if you wait and you keep letting that noxious gas stack up until they have like 15, now they're going to take 30 poison damage and that's going to be 29 next turn and, tw- and, and right. so on. Um, if you upgrade Catalyst, <laughs> Catalyst will triple their poison damage. <laughs> and then there's a skill called Corpse Explosion, which <laughs> will take all of their poison damage and deal it twice to everybody. So not just them, but everyone else, and it's doubled. So if you double their poison damage, then you cast Corp- Corpse Explosion, you're already quadrupling it and dealing it to every other enemy. And then if you upgrade Corpse Explosion, <laughs> it will uh, deal three times the damage. Hmm. So if you upgrade Catalyst, it'll triple it. And if you upgrade Corpse Explosion, it'll triple it again. Um, and then there's a skill called Blur. No, wait, Blur is something else. I can't remember what this one's called. Um, oh, it's called Double Tap. And um, if you play that, the next card you play, it'll play it twice. <laughs> oh, God. And if you just happen to get another copy of Catalyst... Now you can do that twice anyway. And if you upgrade <laughs> the double tap thing, it can, it will double the next two skills you play. So with upgraded that, you could, and two copies of Catalyst and Corpse Explosion, you could first, uh, double your next two skills. Then the next skill you play triples their poison damage. Then the next skill you twice. 
<laughs> then the next ability play triples their poison damage twice again. Uh, and then you cast Corpse Conversion, which doubles it. And I did the maths on this. I never actually pulled off this particular move, but I had all those cards in my deck mm. at once, and I did something close to this. Um, I, what I did was I was able to double one Catalyst, which was tripling, right. and then Corpse Explosion. So three times three times two mm. of their poison damage to everyone. If I If my other Catalyst had come up in the same turn i could have uh done one more which would have been another three times three and so ultimately i could have done 81 times their poison damage to every other <laughs> and so this is the kind of stuff i completely nerd out about and uh uh it is a really potent combination with roguelikes because roguelikes mm. part of the addictive quality is is like every run you have whether it went well or badly you're always thinking oh if i just got that other card or that other relic yeah. or that other bonus that would have mixed so well with what i had and like next time i might get something or i might get something else and that combined with like the deck building maths of this card synergizes so well with that one and and there's just no upper limit on on how effective you can be is really really uh it is it is really good and it's very very addictive i think it's mm. seven out of ten good and ten out of ten addictive <laughs> right how do they frame this card game um is it just a, a series of like card battles or is it like a darkest dungeon thing where you're marching oh yeah it's very much like darkest dungeon in appearance mm. uh or in present in like layout anyway like your cards are at the bottom and you see your character on screen on the left and the enemies on right um and they're, they all just kind of stand there and, uh, it's very minimal in terms of the, like when an enemy attacks, just a big red line is drawn across you and it goes, boom. <laughs> like you don't really see them do much. Um, and same for your attacks. There aren't like animations for them or anything. They just deal some damage. Have they got a long-term progression thing? Do you unlock? Stuff? Yeah. Each time your run ends, you kind of, you progress towards unlocking new cards, but it kind of has a bit of the dead cells problem where actually as, uh, a worse version of the Dead Cell problem. <laughs> Dead Cell's problem is that you can optionally pay to unlock things and they get added to the pool of stuff that can show up in, uh, when you find weapons and things. Uh, but unlocking anything that isn't as good as the stuff you already have makes your life worse. <laughs> like it's just going to be, you less often get the good stuff. And this is like that, but worse because you don't choose whether to unlock. In Dead Cells, you opt to buy things in this. Anytime you finish and run, you'll automatically level up. And um, if it unlocks new cards, like the last time I leveled up, it gave me three cards. They come in these preset kind of um, triplets. And uh, these three all did different things, but they all did them when you discard the card. So you can't play it at all. You just can't do anything with that card. You would need to play a different card that causes another card to be discarded. And you would need to hope that that comes up in your hand at the same time as this one. And then it will do like seven damage, which is not great. Uh, or it will give you four block. And that's not great either. Um, and so there's obviously some clever build you can do with these. Like if you had only those and you had exactly the right cards to go with them, I'm sure it synergizes really well. But for me, it's like... Uh, I'm never going to get that particular deck and it just doesn't seem worth it to me. And so all I've done is added three cards to the mix that are just going to keep coming up and I'll never ever want them. And the stuff I do want is going to come up less often. So that's kind of annoying. Hmm. Yeah, people were raving about this. And I know that um, me and Marsh had the same response to it, which is to be immediately put off by the art. Has yeah. that been a problem <laughs> for you? No, uh, there's a... The art varies in quality dramatically. Um, and I, some of it, like, there are some character designs I kind of like, and it has, the characters have a lot of personality to them. Um, 
so there's like some crow dudes and every time they show up they go <laughs> and uh say my power will never be matched and then if you defeat them the last thing it says my power was matched <laughs> <laughs> i can see where you like every part of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah 100 percent on board with this um uh and yeah so some of them are like uh, kind of cool designs rendered in very quite a flat style not a lot of sort of shading or, or depth to it um but one that for those particular sprites feels like a stylistic choice and then elsewhere there are certain bits of art that feel like they were done in like five minutes like oh shit we just need some kind of sprite for this and i'm guessing that some of it is just placeholder like right there's actually there's only one that bit of art that i truly hate in it which is the double tap thing um because it's you know just doubles the next skill which is a cool thing and that's card itself uh, makes sense in the in the context but the art they've got is just like a really crudely drawn body lying on the ground with like two really gaudy red bullet holes in it <laughs> which is just like thematically wrong and also just terribly drawn it's like the worst <laughs> even even compared to some of the other rushed stuff there are a couple of screens where you're like oh this is obviously a not finished screen but it's sort of okay it's like it, mm. um it doesn't offend my eyes but the double tap one does <laughs> every time i look at it i'm like oh this is such a good car but it's hideous let's <laughs> <laughs> say the spire mm-hmm. which is in early access um what's its sort of early access forecast in terms of um i don't know but it's being updated fairly regularly like it's had sort of two updates in the week i've been playing it and um i get the feeling like the next character is probably coming soon ish um they uh i read on was it pc gamer or was it rock paper shotgun one of those sites (laughs) made by our friends um that uh they're already kind of like planning the characters they're going to add after those three are done right so um that makes it sound like it's not uh too far off rad you were saying that you were struggling to have short sessions with it earlier yes uh i started playing this game because uh it was recommended to be a friend while i was in seattle and i had jet lag when i got back and it was well the day i got back it was like um i'd had a very long day and i just needed to make it to like midnight to have a reasonable Mm. um uh sleeping time and i was trying to watch star trek discovery to keep myself awake and that did not work (laughs) (laughs) fell asleep during that and then i i woke up and thought shit i need something more engaging to take my mind off this i'll try this slay the spire game and then played it just and it was like 3 a.m. when I finished. <laughs> I was uh, completely hooked on it. And that I was 100% awake for that. did not feel in any way sleepy to my detriment <laughs> because then that was kind of late to go to bed. Um, and yeah, it's when you... A run takes about three hours, I think. Um, maybe like two and a half. And I find I cannot stop. <laughs> so like into the breach probably takes you know, maybe four hours to finish if, if you um currently uh and but when i play that you sort of complete one island which is like one of four and then you take a break and there's just mm. a really natural stopping point and it feels like a manageable bite-sized thing uh this when you complete a chapter uh you just defeated a boss and then you get given a relic and it's a boss relic it's one of those powerful ones there's a choice to make but it's usually pretty easy to, to see which one of these three you should pick um because of how it interacts with the cards you've already got and the kind of style you're going for. 
and it's mega exciting and so the last thing you want to do is stop <laughs> you immediately want to try just like give me some standard enemy i just want to see how this works because this is going to be like you know the ice cream thing where it stacks your all of your um mm. uh your energy uh i had that when i had a card called i can't remember what it's called but it's um it's one of those x energy cards and for every point of energy you spend it will uh, reduce the enemy's strength by that which just is a flat reduction on the damage they do and it will also cast weak on them which reduces their damage by 30 percent for one turn uh, so if you do like three uh energy in this then they'll be weak for three turns and they'll lose three strength mm. but if you had like nine <laughs> energy then they lose nine strength and have weak for nine turns and losing nine strength is like takes you into just this character no longer does damage <laughs> just right. do zero damage every turn and i did that to a boss like it could just never hurt me it would just do zero damage every time it attacked me and it was just doomed to uh, never recover from this one spell i cast on it just because it all stacked up so well man that's not exciting it sounds a lot like um it's not just the corpse explosion thing it sounds like that's some of the same satisfaction that people get out of diablo like yeah. it's that combo building I've got this item which combined with this rune on this ability does this nuts thing and that's my playstyle now. I just press yeah. this button. <laughs> like that's um and that's a cool thing to kind of miniaturize as a roguelike, right? Like, yeah, and, and having that in the context of a card game kind of works better too because you even if you do discover a killer combination, you don't get to do it every time because mm. it's just it's the luck of the draw as to what you get it is way too luck based like the fact that i won on my first ever try is not because the game is too easy the game is actually maybe too hard but i just got such a good set of things mm. that one time and since then i've been screwed so many times <laughs> like it'll, i'll be like two and a half hours in and then just an enemy oh this enemy is just doing 50 fucking damage on his first fucking turn and i get zero block cards in my hand i have a load of block cards on my deck but they didn't happen to show up this time right. so i'm just dead <laughs> it's just over Hmm. That seems like it could be frustrating. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to know, actually, have you played Hearthstone much? Yes. Does it have that kind of crazy maths where you can multiply this by that and that? Mm, within bounds. There's like, right. so Hearthstone to toys with having like pure number wang at the, <laughs> at the edge, right? Like pure number wang lurks at the edge of what is known, but it's not. I, actually, I think, I think Hearthstone is an interesting example because Hearthstone kind of exists in a sort of, um, I think historically a kind of awkward place between the two where um, it is on one hand, a competitive card game that wants to be about understood values and understood, understood kind of damage um, ranges. But then it's other identity is as a fun kind of knockabout card game where mad things can happen. Mm. And there's, there are lines where that is exciting and fun. And there are lines where that is complete bollocks. <laughs> so like I'll give you an example, like it's Yog Saron, which is like one of the kind of like it's, um, Yog Saron is basically, um, Warcraftified Cthulhu God, basically like, um, like yes, the Playmobil Azatoth. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, um, the, like that card is like a big summon, like a 10 mana kind of big drop. But when it's, um, when you drop it, it casts a random spell from any spell in the game for every spell you have cast so far in the game. So if you've cast 40 spells and you drop it, literally anything can happen and it will cast those spells at any target. So if you get very lucky, it will cast Pyroblast, which is a 10 damage nuke four times at your opponent and they can't do anything to survive it and the game is just over. If you get unlucky, it will do it four times to you. <laughs> it, it, if you get, 
kind of, but most of the time it just, you just get weird. So it'll like Pyrobus itself and then it goes away and nothing happened. Like it's, is you know, that's, it's kind of, it's random to the point it's completely uncompetitive. And I used to build an entire deck around it because it's like, I'm just going to play my ranked games and then do this. <laughs> and it's, and it's something really gratifying about like getting your opponent into a victory condition and then playing the spin the board <laughs> card and just like sometimes you lose. Um, but there's other things like, uh, Arcane Bolt and Hearthstone, which is like, it's a projectile does three damage and each individual damage is dealt to a random target, enemy target. And obviously you should never plan around that going perfectly, but there can be games where you've won if your enemy's Arcane Bolt hits um you but you've lost if it destroys your taunt minion or something mm. like that and it's that's complete rng like there's literally no when it's the only play they've got it's just you know it's a dice roll to win the game basically so that stuff's quite frustrating and that's probably to be contrasted with something like magic the gathering where they obviously balance is a complete ongoing kind of bitter battle but <laughs> they run very tight ban lists and kind of constantly right. kind of try and massage it to, to avoid it being a simple kind of number wang experience isn't, isn't there a card in magic the gathering where when you play it in order to resolve what happens you then play another game of magic the gathering <laughs> probably yes <laughs> I heard that. yeah like i think you you take both decks and shuffle them together or something and then just play your magic the gathering game with that yeah. <laughs> deck there's a magic card that you're supposed to destroy that when you use it like physically to rip the card <laughs> off um like there's a lot of mad stuff in magic but like magic mitigates that in a competitive environment with you know huge lists of bands and errata and, and those kinds of things um because that is the sort of if a game is too neat and kind of resolved then you don't get those chances for kind of completely mad things to happen like um but if it isn't then yeah, there's definitely pros and cons both ways. I've forgotten the original question. <laughs> <laughs> I think there should be a Magic the Gathering card where when you play it, you play a game of Hearthstone to resolve what happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have a physical fight in a car park. <laughs> so, uh, actually, that's probably a bad idea. That probably would actually happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, um, I can definitely, to be honest though, I can think of plenty of roguelikes where I've been flat out screwed by basically something i had no control over like mm. ftl will do that sometimes right like it'll be you'll get to a particular configuration of the the final boss ship that it's like oh i could have dealt with it were it not exactly like this but it's exactly like this yeah or even spelunky where it's like oh this layout was just you know particularly mean this time yeah it's like the spires randomness i feel like it would be mitigated if you just if the deck was just 50 percent smaller <laughs> like it's it supports so many different loadouts but they all require this specific set of cards and the other cards are useless to you you just don't want them because they would only pollute the synergy of your deck you know everything has to mm. work with each other and you want it as small as possible so those things keep coming up and so when you're offered these three choices it's like all three of those are fucking useless to me they would only make me worse and that that's fine but it's not a good fit with a really big deck because it just means all these choices are like nope no to all, no to all, no to all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something I very much like about um the obviously physical miniatures and card game Shades by which I know we both played, is that the deck size is very small, so it doesn't take very long to get to the point where you can meaningfully mulligan. <laughs> like, there's, you know, obviously people who are very, very smart can mulligan cards and draws and things in a context where they can play the odds of a 60-card deck and be right a decent amount of time. And that's called being good at things. <laughs> but having a really small deck is very nice for being able to mulligan and feel smart, even though you're not. Yeah, it's something like 15 cards at the start of Slay the Spy, so any bigger than it gets than that is your choice. Like, you've chosen to add things right. to it. Um, 
And the reason I did well my first time, despite ignoring that and just adding a million cards, was that the relic I got, um, I got two relics that, that just worked well together really well. One was the gambler's chip, which means on your first hand, discard as many cards as you like, and they'll just be, you'll draw that many cards. So just a, a do over for, you know, however many you want. Um, and then the other one I got was, um, a permanent state of confusion, which meant that all costs for all of my cards forever are randomized. So they can be <laughs> zero or they can be three, uh, no matter what they were originally. It ignores their original value. So some cheap ones can get super expensive, some expensive ones can get super cheap. But combined with the gambler's chip thing, I could just look at my opening hand, which is big as well. I got some bonuses to how many cards I drew on my first hand. And everything that wasn't zero to cost, I could just discard it <laughs> and then get new ones that might be zero. And then I'm just like, well, I can just cast like nine cards for free this time. <laughs> that sounds like it would be appalling as a competitive game. <laughs> yeah, glad this is yeah it definitely DVD. has to be a single player game this yeah. one. <laughs> sounds right though. I, I would actually like to play it. I think I'll get over my art hump. <laughs> Art hump and ocean release. <laughs> Just definitely English is a language I speak. <laughs> Should we do questions? Sure. Let's do it. Let's do some questions. Some, I say some, I mean three. Let's do three questions. <laughs> so if that's acceptable to everybody. Our first question comes from Joel, who writes, Hey all. In episode 221, Tom Senior imagined a game with mechanics related to the player's shadow. It reminded me of a student project a cousin of mine worked on over a decade ago, an adventure game that resembled Ico, where the main antagonist was the player's own shadow, which would try and pull the player down pits, help enemies, etc. I think some of those students ended up at dice, so I always held a faint hope that maybe that mechanic would eventually see the light of day, but I guess it wasn't meant to be. And now for something completely different. My significant other has enough of me playing that damn clicking game, aka Heroes of the Storm. Have you ever tried or do you know any silent slash quiet gaming mice that actually work? All the best, Joel. I feel like razor mice make less noise than other mice. I have experienced this, yes. <laughs> There's maybe another interesting question to be asked here, which is like, what is the game that involves the least clicking? Other than like games that just aren't controlled by mouse. Like games that are controlled by mouse, but you just click very seldom. Like a lot of thinking between the clicks. I don't know, I'm cheating. Like, like a golf game? Oh hard. yeah, golf's good. Like a shot and then it's maybe like two clicks to get the yeah. swing back and then... Mm, that's, right. a good, that's a good choice, yeah. Um, I like hey, the answer to this question is give up Heroes of the Storm <laughs> to play PGA Tour 96. Did I dream this or is Desert Golfing on Steam now? Both. <laughs> <laughs> did, did anyone remember it coming to PC? I thought it came to PC recently. Don't know. Genuinely don't know. <laughs> There's no earthly reason it shouldn't. Um, and that's, that's a game, mm, fairly infrequent clicks. Um, and like, it, intuitively you think strategy games, cause there's a lot of things to consider, but then most strategy games also have a load of busy work where you just need mm. to click a lot to just do basic stuff. Like Civ, you know, you're just going to be clicking around your cities all the time. Um, you can play a, uh, point and click adventure game, probably with not a lot of clicks as long as you make no mistakes. <laughs> yep um to some extent like XCOMs, i spend a lot of time thinking about yeah like i wasn't even fully aware of this until i recorded myself playing XCOM. <laughs> i watch it back i was like oh this video is an hour and 20 minutes and i make about 20 moves in it <laughs> mm. Mm. 
Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> Click on new game and then nothing happens for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yes, Netflix. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, Quiet Mice, I don't know. I think I, I used to have a razor mouse because um, I, I find it quite hard to find left-handed or ambidextrous mice and that was very quiet. I find it a bit eerily so, actually. <laughs> like, hmm. I quite like a bit of feedback, but then again, I don't. I really like my Death Adder, but it's definitely not silent. It's possibly quiet, but... Mm. I find uh, Quiet Mice feel more futuristic to me. There's something kind of like... Mm. Uh, the silent will of my finger <laughs> in the digital realm. A lot like telepathy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the invisible hand. <laughs> but it's funny because most mice, I think, make noise intentionally. Like, you know, I think they, they do some, some science to, it, to, <laughs> to make it uh, click that much. Because yeah. people like the click. Like, people want... That's how they talk about it at Razor HQ. <laughs> Let's do some it. science to it to make <laughs> yeah. it click that much. Got to make it do click good. Yes, I agree. Because <laughs> isn't that also the case with car doors? Like, it's really easy to make a car door silent, but people mm-hmm. hate it, so they make the car doors make that big clunky noise because people just want that Is that noise. true? I, I heard I that. It is. I'm certain there's... Uh, an audio technician who tunes engines so they sound good as well. Hmm. Oh god, cars and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Some like supercars actually like play the sound of an engine through the car's speakers mm. to make you feel like it's roaring more than it is. <laughs> and I hate that. I hate that because uh, the iPhone plays a camera shutter noise when you try and take a photo with it, and the noise, it's such a shitty fucking. Rec- <laughs> it's like a sixteen kilohertz recording of a shutter. It's so bad. It's just such a. Sh- crappy quality thing i don't care about it making noise or about making a camera shutter noise which is you know what's that word skeuomorphism um Mm. or it's like imitating uh uh, lesser tech but just the noise itself is just shit (laughs) it's just a terrible noise they should it should be like they should get whoever does the voice acting for siri and get them to do like a kind (laughs) of like a cappella version or whatever it's going to do. Like, ching Or whatever. I don't know. That's not, that's not a f- camera noise. I don't know what I'm talking about. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They shouldn't do that because that's dumb, but I said it. Um, yes. Do you have any more mice? Imagine a mouse that made the clicking noise like as a WAV file that plays through your speakers. <laughs> you click. And it sounds like a camera. <laughs> Yes, that'd be awful. Or Siri saying click. <laughs> well, honestly, God, it was genuine, it used to be a genuine issue in the PC gamer offices. People genuinely want mechanical keyboards because they're nice to use and good for games and things. But like, you know, like, it's a lot I, of clacking. I went through many years of, oh, it's this, it's the afternoon and Andy Kelly's writing an article. <laughs> it's time to headphones the f- up for the rest of the afternoon because all you can hear is the sound of like, like dentures falling down the stairs. Like, <laughs> Um, I much prefer quiet keyboards. Actually, I really like like laptop keyboards. And... Yeah, yeah, I like I like my mechanical keyboard, but it doesn't half clack. Actually, if I'm because I tend to be a very early riser. If I get up early, I, I tend to be I get really worried about working on articles and things because like I'm two rooms away from where Pips asleep. But hmm. if like if I you know. What if, what if the spirit of the article takes me and just deafening, <laughs> clacking? What if I can't control? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how it really works. Definitely. Definitely right. <laughs> me. Yeah. Um, our next question, if we're done on, on skeuomorphism mm-hmm. is from Chris, but not me, a different one. 
Uh, he writes, Dear Crow Barnum and Crately, I've been sitting on that pun for two months as I worked my way through 211 episodes of your adventures. Jesus Christ. Wait, what is the pun? Um, Crow Barnum and Crately. But what I, is it referencing? I don't know. Oh, dear. I uh, think... I don't... I thought I did, but you put me on the spot. No, I'm not, I'm not, come on. Isn't that like Farnham is the name of a famous person? Like a- Barnum as well. <laughs> I don't know. No, me neither. <laughs> Sorry, please explain your pun to us. We're sure it's good. The um, a good one um, would be to maybe go, that's why it's never been done to before. Riff on the, you could riff on the PT Barnum thing, yeah, and do the greatest crowman. <laughs> 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 That's actually very good. Thanks. <laughs> you should write into Crate and Crow or something. Like You'd get read out for sure. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, the quick, let's not dwell on this because this is literally. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure someone already did it this pun, but at this point, I'm too invested to quit. Well, nope. nope. <laughs> not only has someone never done it before, it's probably very good. We're just dumb. <laughs> Um, some time ago, I was playing Spelunky and foolishly jumped into a spider that was roosting on the ceiling. Instead of hurting me, the spider exploded and I sat there bathed in the light of epiphany. This is genius, I thought. All these years, I've thought that the Spelunker's stomp hurts enemies, but it turns out they just have very fragile heads. A dormant spider is upside down and so vulnerable. The piff helmet clobbering. I became very excited and relayed this information to several people, including to my unending shame, Derek Yu, on Twitter. I soon realized that Splunky only checks if you're moving down when you collide with an enemy, not if you're above it. My apparently lethal headbutt had actually been me jumping into the ceiling before falling a tiny amount and stomping the spider. My question is this. What is the wrongest you've ever been about a game mechanic? <laughs> Regards, Chris. That's amazing. As I uh, first heard that email i was in genuine awe of this discovery initially <laughs> like oh my god their heads are just weak that makes so much sense it would be a great mechanic if like headbutting a spider who's upside down killed him the same way that stamping on him when he's the right way up killed him like that that would be such a clever idea um but this also means that like if it's just because he was traveling down does that mean while you're traveling down in spelunky you just kill everything you hit regardless of how it interacts with you because that be- could be quite useful sort of sliding past something as you're drifting downwards I don't know. Things. I don't know. I don't. I'm not taking this opportunity to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is not uh, the wrongest I've ever been. I can't think of like a really sort of embarrassing or terrible example. But the one that was most like a wrong theory that maybe it didn't cost me a lot, but I put a lot of work in to to, to test it um, was with Arkham City, um, which is my go-to kind of. I don't know if I can call it a stress relief game because if I fuck it up, I get really stressed. But um, uh, just playing the combat arenas in that game. Um, I'm right in saying Arkham City is the second one, right? Arkham Asylum is the first one. It goes, um, si- uh, it goes Asylum City Night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. City's the one I really, really clicked with. And playing the arenas in that uh, as Catwoman, uh, I love the combat in, in the Arkham games generally. And then Catwoman is a particularly cool set of animations. Um she just feels really different. And there's a particular challenge room that you can play that doesn't involve too many really complex elements like shields and tasers and stuff, um, uh, where you're just kind of allowed to do the moves that, mm. uh, the basic attack and special moves and blocks and stuff. And they mostly work on most of those people. 
Um, and getting really, really good at that was uh, really satisfying to me. And so there are loads of cool bonuses. The fight is like three rounds. And if you, um, if you don't get hurt in a round, it's called, uh, maybe like a perfect round and you get like 500 extra points. And if you don't get hurt in any of the three rounds, you get 500 for each for the perfect rounds. And then you also get a perfect fight bonus, which is like another, I don't know, 3000 or something. Mm. Big bonus for doing that every single time. If in a round, you manage to take out everybody in one long, continuous chained combo. Like your combo is never broken. Not only do you not take hits, but you're never even interrupted in your continuous flow of beautiful moves and perfect um, uh, takedowns. Uh, you get like a flawless round bonus. And that's like 1500 or something. It's like way more than the, the just for not getting hit. And my theory slash assumption was... If you did that in all three rounds, if you did literally the entire fight was just one long, perfect, seamless combo, um, that would be like a flawless combo fight bonus, which would be, you know, more than three times all the other ones put together. I didn't really care about the score that much, but I was just like, that was an accolade to work towards. Mm. I, I was at the point where like, I can get a perfect fight most of the time. And so it's not uncommon for me to get the perfect or I get a perfect round most of the time, so it's not uncommon for me to get a perfect fight bonus, which is for getting all three. Uh, that's like a, that's a good run, but it's not that rare. And I can sometimes get the flawless free flow round bonus for doing one round and, and thing. And I thought if I can just get that every single time, that would be in, like the ultimate accolade. And I finally did it. Like it was, uh, it, it's a beautiful experience. Like playing that way is just feels so fucking good. It looks so good. Mm-hmm. And also it requires a high level of skill. And I'm, as I've probably discussed many times, not a high skill player <laughs> in, in almost any arena. This is one of the only things where I, I like it enough to play it repeatedly and get good at muscle memory and, um, uh, and actually achieve this kind of thing. And I finally got flawless free flow combat and all three rounds. No acknowledgement, no further points. <laughs> there is no, there is no accolade for that. It's just, uh, I don't know if they didn't think of it or they didn't think anyone would get it or I'm playing like the easiest challenge room at a high level. Of, like I'm very, very experienced at mm. the game and I'm playing the easiest possible thing I can do with it. So the fact that I can do it to that level of skill is probably unusual. Like, um, because anyone who's that good is probably moving on to the next for to like two of 20 of these yeah, challenge right. rooms rather than staying on the first one. Hmm. Yeah, I got it. And that more times than I could count, actually, like set myself an absurd challenge and assume the game would mm. recognize it. We had like with heat signature, it was a difficult decision actually to like, do we reward you? Do we give you an achievement for liberating every station of the galaxy? Because that's not the objective. You're trying to get these four strongholds. Um, and doing it is kind of repetitive. You have to just do the same thing a lot to, to achieve it. And so I, didn't want like we never tell you to do it no one ever suggests it's a good thing to do we never point you to doing that because for most people it won't be a fun thing to do but then if you are just someone who is having fun you happen to do it it would also suck if you didn't get anything for it like you 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 would work this is you know like a 50 hour thing it's it's a huge undertaking um and if you did that and then the game just did nothing, it would almost feel like a betrayal. Mm. So in the end, we there is an achievement for it, but it's a hidden achievement and no one ever tells you to do it. So yeah, if you do it, you, we give you a little nod, but that's it. <laughs> right. Hmm. What's the wrongest you've ever been, John? Um, there's a mistake I make every time I play an RTS game. 
which is where I finish the campaign and think, I'm ready for multiplayer now. <laughs> <laughs> and it most recently happened with Dawn of War 3, where I finished the campaign and thought, right, let's try, say, 2v2 skirmish, just simple AI. And then about 20 minutes later, I had to focus on five different things at once. <laughs> and then Alter Forden went, uh, uh, lie down. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think this podcast is an emerging, growing document of things <laughs> I'm wrong about. <laughs> so I find it hard to drill down on one. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think I've learned to, it hasn't happened to me recently because I have a bad habit of sort of, it's just similar to the over-investing and hoping for a reward from a particular path. But like, I get, you know, super into, you know, you know, traditionally like assuming that uh, there'll be some plot punishment for not doing things perfectly in a bio RPG and things like that. And I've now learned to second guess myself so much that now I've started actually making mistakes <laughs> with those kinds of things. The most recent example, this was probably Mass Effect Andromeda where suddenly things did actually go wrong because I relaxed too much out of my <laughs> assumption that nothing really mattered of a certain thought, that kind of thing. Then how, oh, no, no, well, I've expressed that. Um, but that stems from years of meticulously finding every, collectible and everything assuming that everything will be important and it will all come back and, and all the rest of it and then uh just being wrong over and over again like <laughs> the simple answer is these things are there to prolong the game if people decide that they just want to click stuff uh to no real aim um whereas actually you know i'm repeatedly guilty of assuming that everything is meaningful and kind of really really over investing in it yeah do you, do you think games should signal to you what is relevant to the different endings you're going to get because people care about no. that really deeply but there's also it's very hard to do it in fiction right you can't really tell I think, people hey this doesn't matter <laughs> i think you need better games <laughs> no <laughs> i think you need better stories you need stories that don't hinge on things like that like if your galaxy spanning crisis can be meaningfully altered in terms of its outlook by someone having enough copper, <laughs> then I suggest <laughs> that you have not written a compelling galaxy-spanning <laughs> crisis. Because I'm thinking about this lately because uh, the game of prototyping is kind of XCOM-like in some ways. And one of the things I don't like about XCOM is that doing well gives you mechanical rewards that then yeah. make you more effective and it snowballs. So if you're finding the game easy, it gets easier. If you're finding the game hard, it gets harder. Uh, and you want the opposite of that, really. So I I want to stick to a principle of doing well never gets you a mechanical reward. It never makes the game easier. So instead, want, I still want you to have some some motivation to sort of pull off things in a really finesse-type way. Uh, and one of the ideas for that is maybe that gets you a special conversation. You pull off this mission really well, and then someone talks to you about it and says, oh my god, I can't believe you did that well, uh, or whatever. And uh, we can write some fun stuff for that. But I worry that once people know that their performance is reflected in this, some people are going to be like, oh shit, I don't get the good ending unless I get the best possible conversation at the end of every mission. Mm. And now they'll get stressed about not doing the finesse mechanics, which are going to be super crazy hard. I think in that Bioware story example... Um, pointing out which choices affect the ending and which don't just turns it into meaningless choices. Yeah. And meaningful choices. Meaningful yeah. Choices for a certain kind of person anyway. Yes, totally. I think, I think it's just an interesting problem for these games because it's, it's, you start making 
um, guesses about what the response to your actions will do based on purely on trying to game the system, what the designer is going to find important, that kind of thing. And when they try and be completely transparent about something, you end up with the something like Mass Effect 3's military readiness system, which just boils everything down into a points value, really, yeah. and doesn't, isn't very gratifying the other way. Um, I appreciate this is a bit off topic from times I've been wrong about stuff. <laughs> um, but like, those are, those are the sorts of questions that typically kind of lead me down blind alleys in my understanding of what a game is mm. tracking or paying attention to. There was, I remember having a really, um, weird, uh, conversations after Oblivion came out because I reviewed it and I really liked it. And a lot of people really hated the main quest. I, uh, you know, I mostly got most of my fun out of it from the side quests and the other stuff you do, but I also quite liked most of the main quest. Like, mm. um, uh, the plot wasn't terribly interesting to me, but it involved some cool missions. And then the, like, very, very common problem loads and loads of people had with it was, uh, this thing where, like, a whole load of oblivion gates open, and they were just like, God, oh, this is just so tedious of closing all these oblivion gates. They just have to do the same thing, like, 12 times or something. And you don't, like, someone tells you, oh, when you're ready, come back and, and we'll launch our final assault or whatever. And that's the point at which all these oblivion gates are open. And for some reason, it was clear to me that you didn't have to do them all. It was just like you just, I did like one or maybe two. And then I was like, okay, I'm ready and went back and we just progressed on with the plot and did some climactic battle or whatever. But for some reason, it like, it was phrased in a way that was ambiguous to enough people that loads and loads of people thought you had to close every single right. game yeah. before you can progress. And that if you do that, it's just super boring. It's just like a total stalling of the game. I guess that's the time that I was right. <laughs> Not wrong. <laughs> in some ways, yes. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, man, I'd definitely done a lot of pointless busy working games because I was convinced it was important. But I think a lot of times I knew I was being dumb, if that makes sense. Like I knew I was like, I'm doing this for role play reasons. <laughs> um, so it doesn't quite count as being wrong because I knew I was being wrong. And if you know you're wrong, <laughs> are you really wrong? Anytime I've embarked on any kind of long-term collection quest, mm. I've been wrong. Like, <laughs> Find all the green orbs in Crackdown, or get all these feathers in Assassin's Creed. As a man who has every flag in Assassin's Creed 1 and 2. (laughs) I would think to myself, when I finish this quest, I will feel a profound profound sense of of a job well done. And that's just wrong. Yeah. Yes. I guess I've never done that. What does it feel like? It feels <laughs> like hollowness. You, you get a, no, I think you get a kind of closure, <laughs> right? Like, I've I've 100%ed the first three Assassin's Creed games. And obviously, looking back on my 20s. There is, <laughs> <laughs> is that how long I took it? <laughs> yeah, all of them. No, I mean, you know, on, on the earlier part of my 20s. And there's definitely, you could, you could make a case for using my time differently. Um, <laughs> but I feel that way about so many things that I did. That it's impossible to itemize the list in quite that way. Like, where does that sit above or below anything else, really? Uh, what a giant waste of time. There's, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I don't feel particularly wrong about that. Also, I mean, it's not really a question of me being wrong. It's the game being wrong and me being <laughs> stupid, which is different. <laughs> um, our final question of the evening comes from Zoe, who writes, Dear all... Welcome back. I hope you're all in good health once again. I am, for my sins, a huge DC fan. While I have great fondness for the big three, my favourite character is unfortunately Hawkgirl, who, while a fabulous character, has a snowball's chance in hell of having a game dedicated solely to her. My question is thus. Who is your favourite secondary or tertiary character from any IP? 
uh, who you'd love to have a game dedicated to, but recognize will that likely never be given one. Thanks for putting everybody. Zoe. Oh, I do have an answer to this. I thought I didn't at first, but I just thought of one. Uh, the time cops in Star Trek. <laughs> right. So in the Star Trek Voyager episode, Relativity, um, I can't remember what she does, but Seven of Nine is involved in some kind of time violation, like she violates the space-time continuum, and just the time cops show up in the coolest looking ship I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, it gleams with like the rainbow colored sheen of oil mm. <laughs> and it appears out of nowhere. And they are people who are just like, their job is to enforce the space time continuum. And so when people do time travel shit and then create paradoxes, they have to fix it. Right. That would be awesome. <laughs> um, ooh, what I go for for this? I think. Oh, well, I was going to say initially that, like, I kind of, I didn't, did think all of this until I realized I was in the room with, I almost said, I want a rock band, but for the background bands from Star Wars cantinas, <laughs> and then I remembered that Connect Star Wars exists. Yeah, I made that. And it's been... I've <laughs> <laughs> seen Han Solo grooving... In a cantina. I tried, <laughs> tried to turn that into a Blade Runner thing, but it didn't go. Yeah, out. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I've seen licensing decisions you people wouldn't believe. Jason Derulo's off-fire off <laughs> shoulder of a licensing agreement. It was a, a great bonding session in the studio. The first time we got our the like the part builds of our new project in. It's like, this is what we're going to be working on. It's like... And Solo's doing a dance. <laughs> He's got backing singers. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's not quite what I want, though, because I want, I want, I want to, I want the jizz band hero. And yes, it is called <laughs> a jizz band. And that's still very good. Um, let me see. I'd like, uh, papers, please, but you're not passport to your Hastings from Paro. He's not. Wait. Do you mean 70 days? 80 days? 80 days. 70 days. Papers, papers, please. You said papers, please. Okay. Yeah. You're yeah. not passport two and papers, please. No, that's true. I'm pretty sure. I was thinking of 80 days or 70 days. As it Give might. me 70 it's, days and it was a day. Exactly. God, we're just, <laughs> it's become nonsense. Um, the, so, What's the wrongest you've ever been? Yeah. <laughs> might have to update our answers to this. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, sorry, not papers, please. I did mean 80 days. Uh, because you're not a adorable valet in, in, in <laughs> Paper Space or, or badly misinterpreted that game. I'm just helping these people with all their passport. <laughs> passports too. <laughs> <Et> passport. <laughs> um, no, so yes, but where you are, Hastings, I know that that's obvious answer for us, the pyro fans, but, um, he, I mean, and I, I think it's probably a crime to call him an underappreciated secondary character because he's <laughs> the main character of that series, even though it's got a name of another. Um, but nonetheless, I think a game where you play as a completely clueless detective assistant who, uh, travels around simply trying to help, but mostly failing would be a lovely excuse for a choose your own adventure game. Mm. I'd play that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what other, what are the most secondary characters? Yeah, I mean, on the Star Trek line of thinking, you could do a, um, you could play whatever game Wesley Crusher is in <laughs> that is clearly not the same game that everyone else in the Enterprise is in. <laughs> like the costume quest or whatever it is that he's, <laughs> he's playing. I figure there's room for a game for the Dota shopkeeper. Mm. Um, I think that there's been a f- few games 
like this before where you're the shopkeeper and adventurers come to your store and you send them off with mm. the kit and so on. But I really liked the VR experience where you're in that shop and oh, you yeah. hear the Dota sounds and you know what's happening out there. Mm. So, yeah, I feel there's uh, a lot of space um, where you hear like various like pain sounds and then a, a bloodied axe comes in and you manage to sell him a vanguard for like yeah, three yeah. times up. Yes, it's oh, there's um, Sluggy's Fruit Emporium. Mm. Am I getting that name right? Um, where you are an alien managing a fruit shop in VR and uh, customers come to you. It's wordless and they just sort of... Um, uh, I can't remember how they ask for what they want, but you kind of show them fruits and by their expression, you figure out if it's what they want or not. <laughs> and their expression is like, if you show them a fruit they don't want, they look like you just shot their mother. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you show them a fruit they do want, they look extremely excited and then you pass it to them and then they pass you like $5 or whatever. <laughs> In the same vein, I think the announcer from Team Fortress 2. Mm. Oh, yeah. Sort of tactics game. Yeah. <laughs> Pitting your idiot mercenaries against another team of idiot mercenaries <laughs> mm. would be fun. I think VR is a good kind of vehicle for this because it's a good way of putting you in the shoes of a character who just sort of stands there <laughs> in the corner of lots of different franchises or games. Everyone is very keen to have, uh, is it Torbjorn's daughter as a playable character? She was featured in like a Overwatch oh, short yeah. um, and everyone wants to play as her. That would just be a new Overwatch character, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> mm. Well, so I think, can anyone else hear that sound? Yeah. It's like someone's uh, enjoying bubble wrap. It do- I think it might be enjoying <laughs> bubble wrap, which means it's time for us to wrap this podcast <laughs> fuck up. Um... <laughs> If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of The Crate and Crowbar, you can do so by emailing us at questions at com. You can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar and hang out with our community on Discord, the link for which is on the website at com. You can find all of our stuff on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. And as ever, this podcast and all of its spin-offs and side projects and so on is supported by our Patreon. Um, thank you very much to all of our Patreon backers and you can find out more information about that patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar i think that's all of the blurb if you'd like to follow us as individuals i'm on twitter at c thurston that's c-t-h-u-r-s-t-e-n although i don't really check it so if you send me a message sorry i don't see it uh tom i'm at pentadact p-e-n-t-a-d-a-c-t john uh john r j-o-h-n underscore a double r thanks everybody yeah. <laughs>